The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Christine, come here, quickly, run to me, leap into my arms. Would you introduce me to your friends? Uh, indeed, uh, Eddie Kintella on keyboards. Thank you, sir. Stephen Bruton on, on guitar. Thank you, Stephen. Stephen Peroni on drums. Stand up, Stephen, for goodness sake. George Hawkins on bass. Thank you, George. And to, uh, Todd Sharp, of course, who I wrote many of the songs with on this record. Todd, I want to talk about you. Bring the keyboard in. I'll talk about him while we cover him up with the keyboard. Come over here, Todd, just a second while they're going to run this machinery and we'll never see you. Why did you select this man to be your co-writer? Well, I've known Todd for about nine years altogether now, but we just started writing, I suppose, about three years ago. Is she difficult? No, not at all. Lots of fun. <laughs> no, no, seriously. You can, you can tell me the truth now. Is she tough? Uh, no. <laughs> quiet, quiet, quiet. No, she's lots of fun. We had a real good time. You lie. Get out. <laughs> We're back. Yes, we're back, Todd. All right. So, yeah, you back to a little bit with playing with Christine McVie. Now, I, I found a, an old clip, and uh, there was another guitar player on the tour, and it wasn't. It looked like Stephen Bruton was playing. Yes, Stephen. There's actually were two. At one point, there was Billy Burnett for a minute, and then Billy had other commitments he needed to do. So we made the record. Uh, with one guitar player, me, and then we toured and we figured we need another guitar player in the band. So uh, we called Stephen Bruton, who was, you know, Stephen's been my best friend pretty much ever since I first met him. We used to be in a band together. Matter of fact, George Hawkins, you know, everything sort of ties together, right? It does. So... You know, I met George when I played with Daryl and John. He was playing with Kenny Loggins. We became friends. George and Tristan Bowden, drummer, played with Kenny Loggins. Then we were working together with Mick Fleetwood in Africa. I don't know, you know, 10 years later or something, or five years later. And so uh, at, at some point, I guess George called me and said, I'm, we're putting a band together with Tom Canning from Al Jarreau's band. And you need to be in it. And this guy, Stephen Bruton, is also going to be in it. And Tris is going to play drums. And we're called the Lucky Dogs. And the only reason we have this band, we're not trying to get a record deal or any of that stuff. We're just going to play every Thursday at the Trancas Bar in Malibu. That's our aspirations here. <laughs> and that's what we did. We had a band called the Lucky Dogs in the early 80s or something. Yeah, early 80s. Stephen and I played guitar, Tom Canning on keyboards, good, brilliant musician. George played bass. Tristan Bowden played drums from Logan's band, now in Chicago, been with Chicago forever. Great drummer. Oh. Was Stephen, was he playing with Chris Christopherson at that point? Who was he? Stephen would have been working with Christopherson at that point, and maybe okay. a little with Delbert McClinton okay. here and there, and probably other people that I wouldn't know at that point. Oh. But we met and just became instant best friends, couple of guitar players, and had that ability to kind of like each other, play together, work together, and not fight each other as players, which is kind of, with guitar players, can be interesting sometimes. That's, that takes a lot. So, and then when Christine did a record, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, Christine was, uh, that was the original plan, was, okay, I'm just gonna get you 
and Tris is going to play drums, and George is going to play bass, and we're good. We got a band. Turned out Chris, uh, Tris had other commitments. Couldn't do Christine's record. He really wanted to, of course, but he couldn't do it, so we started looking for another drummer. Then when it came time to tour, we needed another guitar player, so I called Stephen and said, man, you, let's come out and do this. It'll be a blast. So Stephen played guitar in Christine's band when we toured. Lovely guy. Uh, you know, he passed away, gosh, almost five years ago now, I, I guess. He was my best friend. And, uh, you know, I miss him every day. Brilliant player. Re really great guy, too. You know, just a great guy uh, to talk to. But, but a great musician, great songwriter, too. Really. Uh, and... Uh, he, he did some great solo records, and, and, and his work as a sideman with Delbert and Chris Christofferson and Bonnie Raitt and on and on. He was yes. Stellar. Stellar work. I taught him most of that stuff. You know, <laughs> I, <could t> yeah. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> so after, after, uh, after Christine, uh, uh, did you go straight into working with Rod Stewart? or how, where, where did Rod Stewart come into the picture? Uh, oh, quite a bit later. But so after Christine, I, I uh, you know, I wrote that record with her. I, I started to get some good, things were looking good for me, you know, okay. at, at that point. Uh, I had some other songs that were cut. I had a big Juice Newton cut. Uh, you know, I was getting some interest and uh, got a record deal. And I, and I made a record for MCA right, for Records. MCA. Yes. In 85, 84 and 85, actually. Okay. Which, which was released in 86. And, you know, to continue to do session work, write songs, and, and try and establish a solo career, which didn't really come together. Um, and just gigged around, I guess. Did a lot of interesting things. Uh, Don Gaiman was my producer on my solo record for MCA, who had worked with John Mellencamp. You know, did, did all the big Mellencamp stuff, Jack, Jack and Diane. And, mm -hmm. and Don uh, brought me, uh, you know, so I started to work with him on other projects. Eric Carmen was one. Uh, Jimmy Barnes, played with him for a little while. Jimmy is uh, like a, like Bruce Springsteen of Australia. You know, like if, uh, Australia is like Jimmy Barnes, is, he's a god there. So uh, I did a record with Jimmy and then I did a tour with him in Australia, you know, for like, three or four months or something it was a long time uh and just you know whatever i you know knocked around uh and was playing with david crosby i think at that time and uh, maybe a gig uh, occasionally with bonnie Raitt. not not even no i, I did a few sessions with bonnie okay and uh which I think ended up being I only sang on a few things. I played guitar in a song with this very guitar right here. And they didn't use that track on the record. But uh, anyhow, got to know Bonnie and, you know, love her. She, uh, another person, you know, I probably have her first album at home, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, then kind of got to work with her a little bit. Wonderful lady. Great guitar player as Absolutely. well as a great singer, you know but a really great guitar player. Uh, and so uh, I guess uh, one day um, I got a phone call from my old buddy Carmine Rojas. Carmine is a bass player. Uh, when I played with Hall & Oates back when I was 19, Carmine 
somehow he, he and I became friends. He was playing with LaBelle at the time. Okay. So we were kind of hang, we'd hang out once in a while in New York. Somehow I got to know him. At that time, you know, Carmine had a fro and people called him Pee Wee. That was his nickname. And uh, Carmine went on to, to play with, with David Bowie and, uh, you know, a lot of people. Anyhow, out of the blue, Carmine calls me and says, hey, you want to play with Rod? I said, uh, I think so. I'm, I'm supposed to go on tour with David Crosby. I'm, I, I might. When's it start? You know, what's the deal? He said, well, you got to learn, you know, like 40 songs. We start rehearsing next week. And uh, it's a it's a world. It's like a year tour. So I said, okay, when do I audition? How's that work, you know? And he said, well, you don't audition. You, you just, it's your gig if you want it. I'm, I'm the band leader. And I said, what if Rod don't like me? <laughs> he said, well, then he'll fire you. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of how this one works. Sharp, you want to do it or not? Yeah. So I said, okay. So uh, that's when I started to work with Rod. I guess that was 88 or 89. Okay. And that was, that was great. That was, that was some fun years. I actually learned a lot playing with Rod. Like what? Uh, well, so, you know, for instance, we rehearsed for, you know, probably 10 days. You know, me and Steve Ferris came into the band. Steve okay. used to play in Mr. Mr., another yes. great guitar player. Yes. Two of us came in as the guitar guys and uh, rehearsed. Carmine kind of ran the rehearsals. Tony Brock played drums, great drummer from the Babies, mm -hmm. English guy. Uh, Chuck Kentis on keyboards and uh, Rick Braun on trumpet, who now has a brilliant solo career. Nick Lane on trombone, Jimmy Roberts on sax. All great musicians. And we're just pounding, you know, we're just running Rod songs. You know, we're learning. I, you know, of course, I grew up listening to at least half of it, if not more. So you kind of already know some of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Rod's not even there. I mean, it just so probably the second rehearsal before we're ready to go to South America to open this tour, big, huge worldwide tour. Rod comes in, I meet him, <laughs> and he just sort of he's just listening as we're running his songs down, and he's not singing anything, not yet, anyhow. And uh, he, you know, he just kind of walked up to me and said, "I like the way you do, do, do the." Sweet little rock and roll, that's good, yeah. And he says, uh, can you sing? And I said, yeah, I, I sing. Yeah. And uh, he said, could you learn the harmony to, you know, and he gives me a couple of his songs. Like, some guys have all the luck and yeah. something. There's some harmony with me. And I said, okay. So, I'm, you know, I go home and I learn them and I come to rehearsal the next day. And he doesn't sing. He's just kind of listening to the band and kind of going, all right. And we got, and our first show's in Brazil. Soccer stadium, 90,000 people. And we're in the dressing room, getting ready to go on stage. And I said, do you want to go over those harmony parts? <laughs> and he says, no, we'll just do it on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was kind of what working with Rod was like. But when you walked on stage with Rod Stewart, it was a party. I mean, it was a extravaganza in a show and a real show and and so you know rod's music his history in music and he's a great singer he's one of the greatest singers ever um and you know he's got this legacy and in his uh you know he's another guy that you know obviously he's he's 
evolved into such different, you know, like now he's, you know, he does torch songs sometimes and then he does some rock and roll and uh, I always dug the rock and roll stuff. But anyhow, uh, you know, playing with Rod was like as soon as the curtain went up, which sometimes, you know, at one point we did a round thing. It's a huge production, you know, gosh, I don't know, 70 people on, out there on the road and staging and stuff like I'd never seen before. Uh, and, you know, the curtain would go up, man, and, and it would be always like, wow, oh, here we go, you know, because the place would go nuts, full of girls and women, mostly, and they'd throw their underwear at you, and, and you know, it was just a party. It was, it was awful. It was terrible. And, you know, occasionally Rod might say something, you know, about apart but we usually you know he was kind of like well you play you you got this i don't you know you know you certainly don't want to reinvent you know oh you probably can't hear this yeah. you know you're yeah. not going to change that yeah you're not going to change the opening to maggie may you're not going right. to change the signature of stuff that yeah. you know connects to people's hearts as soon as yeah. they hear it but Rod was just so cool about like, you know, just play whatever you do. I'm good with it. I like the way you play. Yeah. You're fine. So what was your rig when you were working with Rod Stewart playing in, you know, stadiums and arenas? It was and... loud. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's funny. The first rehearsal I walked into, I had two Dumble amps at the time. Okay. I had custom made Dumble heads, 150 watts each. I didn't, I, I didn't want one. I, I got two. Because yeah. I had to have two. Yeah. And, you know, so I I think uh, I brought him to rehearsal. And and before I even plugged in, I mean, I walked by the drum monitor when, when Tony hit his snare drum. And it was so loud. I, I looked at the monitor guy. I was like, you know about that? He, he just laughed at me. He went like, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. guy's new. Yeah. And we started to play. It was the loudest band I ever played, and it was so loud. But, you know, I had the amps to keep up with it. So I had two yeah. dumbbells. And uh, really was the only time I ever had the opportunity to air those those babies out because yeah. they're great big heads, and they were loud, and uh, and they sounded great. You know? So were these overdrive specials or steel string singers, or what were they? They, they were, were just something custom of, made for you? You know, I was playing with Mick Fleetwood in a rehearsal Dumble used to have an office, I mean a closet, in places in LA called the Alley. I mean, literally, it was it was a closet, and that's where he built his amps. Okay. So one of his amps was in the rehearsal room, and I was plugged into it, and I played it, and I just freaked out. This would have been, I don't know, 79 or 80 or something. And, you know, at that time, man, no one was doing the gain channel thing properly. I mean, Mesa was doing it, but... You know, just was Mesa. It was good, but it was like, do you either want it to sound like Carlos Santana or don't use Mesa? Yeah. And I couldn't, I, I wasn't it. So I plugged in the Dumble, I freaked. I just said, well, okay, I got to have one of these. And, you know, I don't know what that amp was. I think it was a David Lindley amp or something. It's a great, big, powerful head. I said, build me one like this. And so, uh, you know, some time passed and I finally got, got one of them. And, uh, I, I, you know, they're actually unique. As the only two we ever made like that, mm -hmm. I think, as it turns out, they are probably the most valuable dumbbells out there, which is 
kind of like, you know, but I sold them. <laughs> well, I sold one of them. I yeah. kept one because yeah. at some point I went, I do not need two of these amps. Right. Uh, so I'm going to sell one. And I sold one, not for much more than I paid for it, really. And, uh, you know, this is way before the things got nuts. And naturally, the other one got stolen with mm. all my stuff. All, everything I owned got stolen once. Yeah. And uh, so some years later, with the Dumble thing, uh, we're kind of veering off into the Dumble corner. Right. This guy calls me from Germany who's making a coffee table book about Dumble amps. It's a great book. He actually has, like, every amp. It's by serial number and the story behind it in a picture. It's kind of interesting. So he calls me and he says, I know you had a, you wrote a thing for a magazine once about this. Got permission to reprint it. And he interviewed me and asked me about the amp and he put a nice picture of me in there. And he sent me a copy of the book. And I opened the book and I read it. And it's and at the end of the, my little story, and, it, and it's like Todd Sharp had these two amps. They're very rare. Serial numbers 120 and 121. And 121, here's a picture of it, recently sold on an auction online for, what was the number? $92,000. And, and I looked at that and I went, I just spent the rest of the day, you know, going, yeah. $92,000. 92000 Wow. I mean, it was a good amp, but it, you know, wasn't that good. Anyways, uh, that's my, my, my Dumble stuff. Yeah. I played Dumbles with Rod. I also played Marshalls. Okay. After a while. And strats or you know, Oh, gosh. You know, with Rod, lots of guitars. Matter of fact, that's a kind of a pivotal moment for me. So uh, this is the 80s, man. And, and, and I'm right there with all the L.A. guys. I've mm -hmm. got a Bradshaw rack that's beautiful. i got a little mini refrigerator with switching yeah. stuff, MIDI controllable program change. i got a Marshall. i got an AC30. Uh, i got... A uh, API equalizer. I got a Yuri limiter in there. I got some, I don't know, chorus, and I got a Echoplex in a drawer. Eventually, an Eventide harmonizer for echoes. And I got a Silvertone that I use for slide. I got, uh, I, I, I had this out there. Um, I had a White Strat. I had a Telecaster. You know, all kind of stuff. I also kind of played all the acoustic guitar stuff. So I got okay. 12 strings and nylon string. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes you find yourself in that thing. When you walk into a gig like that as, as you know, guitar guy, you know, you got to learn all this stuff from, you know, uh, Stay With Me to Maggie May to uh, the, the 80s stuff you know, which was probably Michael Landau and, and, and a lot more, you know, and, and, and cover a lot of things. So you tend to go to all those tools to do it. And that's kind of your thing. So that's kind of what I did when I played with Rod. And, and there were always, you know, guitar changes all the time. It was a big deal because I would constantly be going from, you know, the 12 string to the Telecaster for a little bit of sweet little rock and roller. And, you know, then we're going to do uh, one of his 80s songs. So I, I, and I had a Jim Tyler guitar. Okay. That was actually the main guitar, the Tyler. Um, at some point while playing with Rod, I picked up this guitar, this very one, Stratocaster. I bought it in England. I think it was Coventry, England. I walked into a music store, 
I'd been on the road with Rod for a long time, so I had a little money in my pocket. And I asked the guy if he, you know, I was kind of looking for a strat. And I asked the guy if he had anything. He said, well, I keep the good stuff upstairs. And he had some stuff up there. He had one of Hendrix's strats. And this was the one that, it's a 59. Um, I think I paid $4,500 for it or something like that, which at the time was a, a decent deal, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then, but once I got that guitar, I, and then later on, I, I uh, picked up a Ampeg VT40 in Sweden, of all places. Because mm -hmm. when you're in Sweden, that's where you want to buy gear. Yes. So you can figure out how to get it home. Yes. It's much more fun that way. And pay a lot more for and it. And pay more for it, yes. And, uh, but, you know, what I also have learned is that, like, when you plug into something and you go, ooh, that's it. Buy it. You know what I mean? That's the one you want. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, I bought a VT40 and I got that Strat. And somewhere in that period, I kind of found something for me. And then I'd, I moved to Nashville and I stopped playing with Rod. I was kind of, you know, well, I fired him. Okay. Yeah. Which you had he, to do. He, he started to get, you know, yeah. big headed about things. And also the underwear was starting to irritate you on stage. Well, that and, you know, singers. Yeah, I mean, singers. They're singers. Yeah. So I kicked him out of the band and moved to Nashville. Okay. I started working with Delbert McClinton. Yeah. And uh, I think the first, and, and then there's another great guy, amazing guy, and probably maybe one of the best singers alive. Delbert's another guy that's like, you know, every time he opens his mouth, the right yeah. stuff just comes out. It's just amazing. You look at guys and go like, man, can you ever not? He just nails it. We're just right every time. Mm -hmm. Soulful. So I meet Delbert through Stephen Bruton. I'm new to Nashville. And Gary Nicholson, who's playing with Delbert. And he's kind of, those guys are thick as thieves. They're tight. Yes. And Gary, and they need a guitar player. And so I go over to Gary's house and sit down with Delbert and we go over a set list of 30 songs. Can you do this gig next week and maybe you can start playing in my band? I said, okay. Uh, he gives me a couple of cassettes. So I learn all this stuff, which are, you know, most of it's like straight ahead stuff. It's stops and starts and intros and what yeah. keys it in. And it's funny because I get on stage, no rehearsal. It's kind of the Nashville thing starts to kick in, and uh, and and uh, and I've got my set list and my notes of these thirty tunes, and you know the first song is something that he never even mentioned to me, and says, you know, calls it out and says, "You started." That's <laughs> 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 what Delbert's like. <laughs> first of all, he he kind of barks. He turns around. He goes, "How do those are?" And you usually go like. To the drummer, he goes, what did he say? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, he said, oh, weakness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. And then he goes, uh, well, you start it. Yeah. <laughs> and the first time we played it, I said, how's it go? Yeah. <laughs> Just hold me the intro. <laughs> okay. So, you know, that's kind of how that went. And, and, uh, and when I started to play with Delbert, I figured out real quick, I think the first gig I brought my Vox AC30 and my Tele, which I'd been playing. Uh, I was using that with Carlene Carter. I played with okay. that for a little while. And that yeah. worked really well. Yeah. Great combo. Delbert, it didn't kind of fit in. It was kind of working, but it wasn't fitting. And then I brought yeah. my VT40 and this Strat. 
and I found a whole new world. And that's kind of when I stopped playing around with all the garbage. Not that it's garbage, but yeah. first of all, there's a certain kind of music. You know, it's not like I had to, you know, cover some signature guitar lick from the intro of a record that has echoes and yeah. whatever. All, all of a sudden, you could get just a good guitar sound, and you weren't having to replicate, you know, some signature thing that some session guy did. Yeah, you know, like you said, with you know, pretty much. Yeah. And I sort of rediscovered the early years of playing guitar, mm -hmm. of like just plugging into the amp, getting a sound, and you know, using your volume control once in a while. Mm -hmm. And also, that's about when I stopped using picks. Okay. Uh, you know, I was dragging a nylon string around on the road in a hotel room all the time just to keep myself occupied. Not any kind of classical guitar player, but just, you know, yeah. when you when you noodle, I can never play the guitar by myself. You know, I mean, one of those guys is kind of like, what do I play? <laughs> yeah. But if you learn some classical, you can entertain yourself. So I would do a lot of that, and I started to get this right-hand technique thing going. I mean, I've been working on it for many years, but it started to come together. And then I just said one day, why don't I play electric guitar this way? And with the Strat in that Ampeg amp, that VT40, I just kind of found this thing. That VT40 had a really wide front end and a certain kind of gain structure that you could plug a single coil guitar into it. As long as you turn the amp up, which you always have to do, get amp, any amp to sound, you know, find that spot. Yeah. And man, I just found that I could change sounds by changing the way I touch the strings and maybe use my volume control once in a while. And, uh, you know, that became my new basis for playing guitar again, you know, because it just seemed like for years when I got a guitar, you know, I'd just go like this and, and that. Yeah. Marshall. Yeah. Tube Screamer. Echoplex for this song, you know? Right. And then uh, I finally, I just stopped doing that and I realized uh, that I played much better guitar, hmm. you know? And you could actually feel it with an audience too. Like, because you can, you know, I mean, there's, when you play, you, you either connect with an audience or you don't, you know? And sometimes it's, I mean, it's an incredibly special thing when you could just play guitar and occasionally, you know, if you're having a good night, you know, like the audience might actually applaud because you played a solo or, or you kind of can tell that, whoa, I, I, I think, I, think yeah. I got across there. Yeah. And uh, anyhow, that's sort of probably about for me, uh, whenever that was, 97, 95, 96, stopped hauling eight guitars and six amps and a switching system around. So you had the 59 Strat and the Ampeg VT40? Did you I had have a tuner. A tuner? I had a Demeter tremolo pedal. Yeah. And uh, maybe an overdrive for occasionally. Yeah. And my overdrive at that point of choice was a Ibanez classic metal pedal with a distortion turned all the way down. Okay. No idea if it's a good pedal. Not, but it was working. But it worked for that ring. Yeah. So, so you moved to Nashville and you played with Carleen Carter for a while, which also Al Anderson was in that band. Yeah. And I which, was in the band with Al. Yeah. 
and uh, you know, of course, he's kind of got a, a following as a as a as a songwriter now. But more more people know him as the the great Telecaster player in NRBQ, and and they played a lot of great uh, stuff on there. And and there's there's some great clips online of of you and he you know playing together with uh, Carlene. But uh, so you played with Carlene, and then you started playing with uh, Delbert Clinton. Now, how did the amp repair stuff come in? How did that happen? You know, um, it happened because I uh, I must have been insane for a little while. Oh. You know, it, I, I don't know how it happened. I think, uh, I thought, you know, I, I'm pretty good at messing with that stuff, and I might want to do that on the side. Especially after coming here and kind of going, yeah, okay, we're not going to fly around on private jets anymore, which is cool. I mean, I did get a little spoiled. Yeah. But, you know, uh, we've, my wife and I have three kids. They were young. I kind of was more of the idea of, I, I don't really want to spend, you know, 12 months on a road anymore. If, if I can do weekends, that'd be cool. Yeah. But I probably can't make enough bread, you know. So what else could I do? So I started messing around again with electronics. So when I was a young kid, I was into electronics before I even started to play guitar. Okay. I was into ham radio. Like like most guys who are building amps now. Yeah. Most of us around our age, I should say my age, at one point we were into ham radio. And so when I was seven years old, I got my novice license and you know learned Morse code and I built a power supply and a transmitter and used to sit up in my bedroom with headphones and a code key and try and, you know. So I sort of had this fundamental electronics thing from when I was a little kid. And it's, and I didn't, and, and then I started to play music. And so now I'm getting to be 40 years old or so. I'm kind of just sort of reading magazines and fixing my amp. I'll tell you how it happened. I started playing AC30s in around 1990 or something. And those damn things break down. All the time. Every time you turn them on. So I started fixing it. <laughs> and, and you know what lo and behold I, a couple of years later I'm like fixing amps for other people because I'm kind of good at it oh. and I play guitar so that's kind of how it started it's just a little thing I would do out of my garage what, if I wasn't out with Delbert or Richard Marks or some, some of the other people I played with oh. and, then it, and then it just kind of snowballed on me you know to where it got like my God, this is Nashville, and apparently there aren't too many other people around that do this, because all of a sudden, everybody's running their gear down to my house, you know? Well, I can say that the, the difference was is that you as a player, you know, you would actually play through it and, and hear what it sounded like. You, you were uh, yeah. not just, you know, seeing a problem and fixing it, you actually were looking at the, at the whole amp and, and the health of it and how it sounded. Yeah, well, so. well obviously, because... Uh, you know, it's such an important thing, and yeah. uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole uh, a whole lot to talk about there too. You know, uh, um, it's it's kind of an interesting idiom, I guess you'd call it when you think about it. Mm -hmm. So what we you know we have this world. You've got what ten amplifiers sitting here, guitar amps. They're all basically the same technology, and they're all basically the same era of technology which started in about the early 40s. I mean, it really started in the 30s. Mm -hmm. But then sort of, you know, there was a big breakthrough of 
of circuitry and vacuum tube production, you know, to where all of a sudden, like, people figured it out. Yeah, we can build a 30-watt amp. You know? Right. Uh, and with the push-pull idea and circuit and uh, Williamson's negative feedback, global negative feedback to tame these high-powered beasts, you know, it's sort of started a revolution that probably really took hold in 43 or something like that, right? And uh, and so very little of anything in in this world of amplifiers, when we're talking about Fenders or Voxes or Marshalls or whatevers, has really changed from then. No, it hasn't. It's kind of like most people are kind of trying to figure out, how the hell do I make a Tweed Deluxe, you know? And that's what most boutique builders are doing. How do I make a, a, a Plexi Marshall like they used to? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, those blackface fenders or those old Dan Electros or, you know, whatever. It's it's often like a recreation of what's already been done. And it's the same thing with guitars, right? Right. It's like, you know, we go and do the NAMM show and marvel at all these new guitars and I'll be damned if 90% of them aren't like, look, a, a Stratocaster with a twist, you yeah. know, a Telecaster body, a Les Paul body. I mean, it's kind of like 1951, they made that, that broadcaster, whatever it was. People are still trying to figure yeah. out how to make a 1951 and guitar. And they're still doing reissues. As good still, as they did in 1951. Copies. Yes. And, and how do we make the pickups like as good as they did way back then, 60 yeah. years ago? Yeah. And... All of it, you know, speakers, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's an interesting thing in, in guitar. So, yeah. you know, for me as a player and also, you know, having an interest in electronics, you know, I just kind of figured one day, hey, man, I, I think I might go for this. And, and at first I was kind of like, well, I don't know if I should make that jump because, you know, you're either a musician and you're in, you're all in, or you're out, probably. And then I thought, you know, I, I'm just going to get over that. I don't, I don't need to fit that, you know, mold of what I think. Maybe that's all in my head. I don't know. Because I dig amps, and I think it's creative and, art, and, and artful. And so one of the reasons I'm building amps today is I think that there's other ways to approach the whole thing, you know, rather than saying, I've got a Tweed Deluxe, but with higher headroom. You know what I mean? It's like if I hear one more or read one more review of a Tweed Deluxe, but with six L6s, I'm going to like, you know, shoot the magazine or something. I don't know. Right. It's kind of like, I get it. Yeah, I know. It was a great amp and there's like 15 or 25 builders doing it already. Mm-hmm. I don't think we need another one. Right. We don't need another, you know, 18 watt Marshall knockoff. This has been an audio presentation by True Tone. TrueTone.com.